Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 60th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is using sensitivity as a strength. I'm joined by Melody Wilding. She is the author of Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking, and Channel Your Emotions for Success at Work. The publisher is Chronicle Prism. Melody has been named one of Business Insider's most innovative coaches with clients across a range of Fortune 500 companies, as well as the United Nations. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Oprah Magazine, NBC News, The Washington Post, Fast Company, and elsewhere. She's a licensed social worker with a master's degree from Columbia University. Welcome to the show, Melody. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. So go ahead and give us a brief overview, if you might, of what uh, your book is about. Trust Yourself is all about getting out of your own way and rediscovering your sensitivity as a superpower. Since being highly sensitive is a wonderful, powerful trait, but at the same time, it can lead to many downsides like overthinking everything, burnout, So this book is really the culmination of over 10 years of coaching individuals who identify as this personality type that I identify in the book and really giving them a roadmap to achieve greater confidence, overcome imposter syndrome, and really be more assertive in the workplace. And uh, that personality type, is that the sensitive strivers? That's right. Okay. And would you just have to ask, would you consider yourself one as well? 100%. This book is... 100%. Okay. Yes. It is very much from, you know, they say we write what we most need to learn. And that is definitely true in my case. Okay. That's fair enough. Um, So tell us about some specific habits or patterns that you would say these sensitive strivers, including yourself, tend to have. Absolutely. So a sensitive striver is someone who is both highly sensitive, meaning they think and feel everything deeply, but they are also high achieving. So these are people who experience emotions to a deep level of depth and complexity. They have a strong desire to exceed expectations in everything they do in their lives. They are kind, empathetic, but as I said, they can also struggle greatly with having a loud inner critic, with putting other people's needs ahead of their own, saying yes and having difficulties with boundaries or having a mind that never shuts off because they are such deep thinkers. So it's it's these two qualities when come together can really be a little bit tricky to navigate. Okay. And would women be more likely to be sensitive strivers than men or is it quite equal? Any, any sense of the distribution? What's interesting is that the distribution is roughly equal. When we look at the research, there is not a difference in gender in terms of men being more sensitive than women. But what is different is socialization. 
So women tend to face socialization as young girls uh, of having to be kind and uh, deferential to other people and also perfectionist. So by the time girls are young teens, they think that they are not allowed to fail. And then on the other hand, for men, sensitive men tend to hide their trait because of toxic masculinity. You know, as as a man, you don't want to be equated with being soft. So they learn to stifle that part of who they are. Okay. Well, I, I like that answer because I think that is true that that is one of the things that happens to to guys, I, I often joke among my male friends, I just have two types. I have those you can actually have a conversation with and those you merely do sports with, for instance. Um, my, my mom jokes that uh, a male conversation on the golf course is see you at the green. And that's about as far as it goes often. Um, so I'm a little surprised that the guys qualify equally, but uh, that's great. Um, just some, some missed opportunities there at times, perhaps. Um, I'm interested in where you think the economy is going, because it strikes me that the sensitive striver who presumably has some very good people skills that they can exercise might be a really good fit for what's being called increasingly the effective economy, that we're going to have a need for people with high EQ to perform in a world where algorithms also rule. Uh, any, any vantage point on that? Yes, that is my opinion as well, that everything we're seeing in terms of trends is pointing towards increasing automation, digitalization. And what is going to be a competitive advantage is having high EQ, high intuition, great people skills and communication, empathy. All of that is going to matter because none of that can be replicated by a machine. Okay. And I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the, the big five factor traits, personality traits of ocean, something yes. called ocean for openness and conscientiousness and agreeableness, mm -hmm. extroversion and neuroticism. Um, when you go through and you detail various qualities about sensitive strivers, uh, sensitivity, thoughtfulness, responsibility. Would you say some of those traits particularly stand out that fit the profile of a sensitive striver? And what are the advantages of that in the marketplace? Yeah. So many of the ocean traits in particular, we can see conscientiousness is a big element of being a sensitive striver, being very detail oriented, but wanting things a certain way and being highly attuned to small nuances is a high part of conscientiousness and being a sensitive striver. Um, as is a bit of neuroticism, which is being a bit anxious or high strung about situations. We sensitive strivers, because we have a more active nervous system, tend to tend to be that way, tend to be uh, overstimulated or overwhelmed very easily, which can make us more easily stressed. Okay. Well, it helps give you a profession because uh, th then they, they maybe need a little bit of help. Um, I, I certainly, when I was going through and reading some of the things you were mentioning in the book, thoughtfulness, responsibility, vigilance, and so forth, I, conscientiousness definitely stood out right away. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, okay, so is there a second leading trait? Is it agreeableness or is it neuroticism? <laughs> and that's kind of where I, I left it. And it sounds like you, you would lean a little bit more towards perhaps the neuroticism. Uh, I would say agreeableness can definitely factor in there as well. And, you know, the the key difference here is that with high sensitivity, what we're talking about here is a attunement and a deeper processing of the environment, your own inner world, and a higher attunement to other people's thoughts and feelings. So that's fundamentally what sensitivity is about, is that uh, profound 
affectedness by what's going on both within and around you. Okay. Um, let me follow up on that just a little bit because I'm, I'm curious in terms of your coaching then. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to imagine you get a lot of high achievers who come your way. So that's the conscientiousness part. And then they're maybe trying to assuage the neuroticism a bit, make sure that it doesn't trip them up in the in the workplace. Can you give us a little sense? I don't normally invite someone to promote their own services on the show, but in this case, it seems so appropriate to what we're talking about. Any sense of the the journey you're trying to help them make? And maybe we can, I'm sure this is a multi-part question mm -hmm. ultimately here, but um, maybe maybe take us through the journey by starting when they first come in, your, maybe a, a case example, mm -hmm. uh, a first exercise you put them through, a couple of questions you ask them because you have to get a sense of who they are mm -hmm. uh, to really take them forward. That's right. So my typical client tends to be uh, someone at a Fortune 500 company who is manager level of abo or above. So I would say, you know, my average client is around director level. And as you said, yes, this is someone who has been highly successful in their career. From the outside, it, it looks like they have it all. They have great credentials. They have a great job title. They're very smart. Other people perceive them as effective. But within, it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> they often feel like they are not good enough. They overthink situations or they struggle to turn off their mind at the end of the day and really separate from work. They may feel emotionally reactive. So they may feel as as if every feedback or criticism is what sends them down a negative spiral for days. So when clients come to me, they nine times out of 10 say, I am getting in my own way. I realize that I am the number one barrier to my success. And sometimes they want to achieve some greater external result. They want to get a promotion or a raise or whatever it may be. But more times than not, it's that they want to achieve an internal result that they want greater uh, success rather without so much stress. They want to feel greater satisfaction and ease and confidence in their day. They just want to enjoy their, their work more. And so, so much of my work really draws from my psychology and neuroscience background in helping these sensitive strivers better manage their own thoughts and emotions so that they can take more effective actions. Okay. Well, that would probably be where the neuroticism comes in a bit because, you know, anxiety can be quite central to that. Uh, it's interesting to hear that they come in. It sounds like uh, afraid that it's a case of imposter syndrome and that they really don't qualify. And yet, you know, they're all coming to you as directors or above. And obviously a whole bunch of people have, have validated them over time. Um, so if they have anxiety, any difficulties with them opening up about this or they just they just go right there with you? Yeah, you know, of, of course, everyone is different, but I would say that sensitive people in general are much more willing to go deep very quickly if they know they can trust you. Right. And in so in including the guys. Including the guys. And, and okay, what's really interesting. Yeah. What's really interesting is that the more I have talked about sensitivity and pointed all of my work in that direction, the more men have come into my world, which is really fascinating. Okay. And and you you mentioned something in the book called the four feeling tests. Um, and take me through the nuances because when I first read it, my sense was two emotions, fear, which we've already brought up a bit here in terms of tension and discomfort. And then anger, because you, you mentioned explicitly frustration and then resentment. So take me through how we get from two to four, because obviously there's 
nuances there. And I'm not challenging you. I'm mm-hmm. just looking for you to flush it out a bit for me to understand how we get to four versus two. Sure. So for context for the listeners, the four feelings test is a strategy I offer in one of the chapters around identifying where you need greater boundaries. So really starting to use your emotions as data to point to situations where you may need to set more effective limits. And there's four different emotions that I share, which, as you say, are different shades of uh, of emotional states. So first we have tension, which is that sense of strain or pressure. You feel nervousness or dread or distraction. Um, then we have resentment. Resentment is probably the most telling of all. That is that bitterness, indignation that you feel every time you have to do something. Um, then we have frustration. That is being upset, annoyed, displeased at, at someone else or yourself because you feel blocked. And then last we have discomfort, which is that just low grade uneasiness or impatience. So it could break down. You were saying it, you believe it broke down to fear and what? Uh, anger. Just Well, because the frustration yes. and anger obviously go together. So if I could follow on. So I'm really most intrigued probably by resentment of those mm-hmm. four. Um, you know, what is the, the, the causes of resentment? Is it more internal or external? Is there something you've seen in how companies reporting relationships and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, job descriptions play into this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, 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 any way in which they have tried to coach or mentor themselves out of that resentment prior to coming to you? I mean, a whole mm-hmm. host of questions come to mind. You can you can take any one of those you'd like or shoot off in another direction. I just really would like to hear more about how, how you're helping them with uh, resentment. You're exactly right. That resentment is definitely the most telling the easiest to spot. So whenever I'm coaching people through this exercise, I always say, look for resentment first, because it's usually the hottest emotion that we can spot that says, you have let a situation go on too long. Many times resentment is unvoiced anger. It's a signal that something important to you, a rule, a standard, your time has been violated or neglected by you or by someone else. And What's important about resentment is that it's a choice. It's how you're, uh, how either you have been perceiving a situation or behaving in it. So many times I will see this with people where uh, their agreeableness takes offer, take takes over, and they uh, are are agreeing to help out a colleague on a project. And the colleague has said, "Oh, it will it will just be a couple weeks." And now it's been a couple months and you are still pitching in on this and it's taking up a lot of your workday or you're being pulled into difficult, very political situations and you feel resentful about it every single time you see that meeting come up on your calendar or an email about it hit your inbox. That's a very important emotional signal that is telling you that you need to set some limits here. That may be taking yourself out of those meetings, maybe having a, you know, come to Jesus conversation with that client, uh, with that colleague you have to say, you know, I was happy to help you with this. However, we're going to have to put together a transition plan so I can get off of this project. Okay. Well, I was really interested in what you just said, because uh, I think we're getting somewhere indeed, because when I think about resentment, I start taking it back to this, you know, outstanding trait they have of conscientiousness. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the cliche, if you need something done, ask a busy person, Mm -hmm. Uh, that there are people who just end up caring more than their fair share in many cases. So it can almost invite uh, resentment. What 
tends to be the ways out. You mentioned uh, speak up shortcuts, for instance. My favorite was to speak up within the first 10 minutes of, of a meeting, for instance, because, yes, if you go too long, you might just say, I'm going to be agreeable and, and run out the clock and you know find some other way to deal with this. What are some other shortcuts that you particularly liked from your list that you found to really help your clients or anything else that helps arrive at a fix to resentment, which I, I agree with you. I think it's kind of like the, the boiling pot. Mm -hmm. Well, overcoming resentment comes down to setting boundaries, right? Okay. So saying no kindly is such a crucial professional skill, especially as you go up the ladder. So learning to put space between the request and your acceptance. So many times that agreeableness or conscientiousness makes us want to hop to just automatically saying, sure, sure, I can help out with that. Everybody <laughs> wants to be the team player. Yep. But getting used to having those little handles like, thanks for thinking of me. I'll have to think about that. Or let me check my calendar. Or let's first talk about how we might make this work or how we might prioritize it. Putting those in there as a stopgap before committing is going to save you a lot of resentment down the road. Okay. Um, that all makes sense to me. Uh, I'm curious that you've admitted that you're one of these sensitive strivers. Um, if I can make this a little bit more personal, but you can also bring it into all the people you've, you've worked with as clients over the years. So in the book at one point, I think it's uh, page 130 something or other, uh, you have a list of core values. Mm. Um, you know, no doubt you're a very good coach for people. Uh, what are your core values, would you say, from that list if you chose two or three uh, that really helped guide you in terms of how you uh, have developed your own skill set, how you help other people develop theirs? Mm -hmm. What's interesting is because I, I think many of my core values are very similar to my strengths, which is interesting. So one very important core value of mine is independence. And so I am always promoting independence in myself. It's one reason why I work for myself, that freedom, that flexibility to have agency and choice and intentionality over how I use my time, what projects I work on and making sure that everything I'm working on is something I deeply care about is incredibly important to me. Um, as is, you know, as a coach, promoting that sort of independence and empowerment in my clients. So that's number one. I would also say uh, discipline is an incredibly important value to me. I am an incredibly disciplined person, maybe too much sometimes, um, but I see discipline as freedom. So discipline almost serves that uh, first value of independence slash freedom for me because creating constraints, creating uh, boundaries and um bumpers helps me preserve my energy, make decisions more effectively. And then the last is, is empathy. You know, I think it's, it's core to who I am as a sensitive striver and always being the one to, it, it is very important to me that I understand all sides of a situation that I am able to understand, even if somebody is lashing out at me or being very aggressive to understand what might be going on for that person that is leading them to think that way? So really having that lens and that value is is very important to me. Okay. And are there values that you, you know, discovering your clients that they have, you know, that their life is not aligned to those values right now? And is there any patterns to, you know, which values uh, really have kind of fallen by the wayside that you're helping them to get back to or realize how important it is to them in some cases? Mm-hmm. 
That's interesting. Yes. I tell a short example of a client in the book who we went through this values exercise and to much to her surprise, one of her core values that popped out was beauty. And that was really surprising to her uh, (laughs) because she didn't consider herself a, a fancy person or very, very into clothes and makeup and things like that. But what was important to her was nature. And she was someone who worked in a government agency. And so much of her day was spent in a very sterile looking office building environment. And it was, it was, it was really killing her. And so for her, what became very important was just small changes of bringing plants into her workspace, getting outside uh, during the day to take walking meetings or during her lunch break, just taking a short, you know, five, 10 minute walk uh, around the trees behind the building on the weekend, going on hikes and being outside, all of these little efforts at beautifying and integrating more nature just made her work so much more pleasurable and really had a huge difference in her mood. Well, I I must say, I I can relate to that. I went through a point in my late 30s, just before I started my own company, in fact, and uh, went for the independence route, uh, a couple of bad bosses, and suddenly my appreciation for beauty went way up. I didn't Mm -hmm. really expect it, but I was looking for a, a new apartment in, in Minneapolis. And normally I would just take something that was pleasant enough, uh, but maybe not so expensive. And I, I splurged just a bit on myself and said, no, mm-hmm. beauty. I, I have to have a pleasing uh, place and a pleasing neighborhood, and I'm not going to compromise this time. Um, I just felt I was I was owed that. Um, so the empathy obviously can mm-hmm. is a wonderful gift. Uh, and generosity is a, is a wonderful thing to be able to bestow on others. Do you find of your three values that the empathy, for instance, ever finds itself at a little bit of a, I guess I'll call it a war with the discipline and the independence? Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, oh, definitely. And, uh, you know, that's why I think it's, it's, it's possible to be both disciplined and strong and be empathetic and kind. I don't think that they need to be mutually exclusive. Um, so absolutely, there are times when I see that when I see the tension between the two. Okay. Um, you also mentioned hero moments, and um, I was in, intrigued by that. I was wondering if you can uh, offer up again, going the personal route a bit, uh, your own hero moments mm-hmm. um, and what that might mean for you, but also for the listeners, they get a sense of where in the book, what you're really going to when you bring that up in the book. Yeah. Hero moments. You know, I think, well, <laughs> the book has just come out only a few weeks ago. And so definitely the biggest hero moment that sticks out in my mind is the launch day of the book. It was such a momentous occasion. And what was really important about it wasn't just, oh, look, I have a book out there in the world and isn't that great, but it it was really about the road to getting there and really gave me so much appreciation for all of the difficulties along the way, the five years it took with wrestling with this topic and writing the book and just all of the ups and downs along the way. It was such a moment of reflection for me, a hero moment where I can stand up and say, look who I became in the process of creating this book. Um, That that was the highlight that stands out for me. Okay. And were there 
um, you know, in, in getting there, I mean, five years is, 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 you know, half a decade kind of sounds like a dissertation in the making. Um, since I have a PhD, I remember getting done with that when someone says, oh, it's like a monument. And I said, well, hopefully not a tombstone. Uh, <laughs> it does take a lot of effort to get a dissertation done. So um, as you're moving through that, I mean, I, I imagine there, you know, that's a journey in itself. There's the journey that probably preceded it. Uh, when did you know you're going to go into this profession and mm -hmm. that this issue of sensitive strivers was really going to be, at least for some part of your career, really the linchpin? Mm -hmm. Well, what, what's interesting is that this book is very much the culmination of my personal experiences and my professional professional. So I have a background in psychology, as I mentioned, uh, I have my master's in social work. And so that, that is what my training is in, uh, neuroscience therapy and my personal experiences all my life. I was someone who was told you're so sensitive. You take everything so personally and just thought it was a, a flaw of who I was. Didn't realize it was it is actually a very real genetic trait difference, a personality difference that a certain amount of the population has. And so when I began coaching, I did start to see a constellation of some of these challenges that sensitive strivers struggle with, the overwhelm, stress, overthinking, lack of confidence. I did start to see that, but I didn't have a name for it. And it was really actually when I started writing the book, it was a very different book in the beginning. And I was really struggling with the proposal and could not put my finger on what the unique idea was. And one day in a moment of great frustration, I just took a whiteboard, wrote down all of the different challenges that my clients had come to me with and things I had helped them on. I just started grouping them together like a mind mapping exercise. And that's when it became very clear that there were two groups. There was the sensitive side of uh, lack of boundaries and, and everything that comes along with thinking and feeling deeply. And then there was the striver side, the high achiever, ultra conscientious, hard worker side. And I just stepped back and it was like a light bulb moment of, oh, sensitive striver. <laughs> oh, wow. And that was, uh, that was the moment when everything started clicking. But I will tell you that I thought my immediate reaction after that was, oh, wow, that's really silly. And no one's no one's going to want to talk about that or be interested in that. But the more I found the courage just to start putting it out there and mentioning it in my blogs or in my emails, the more I saw people get excited about it and identify with it. And that gave me the courage to keep going to, to really identify, typify, categorize all of the challenges that my clients were going through. Um, and so that's, that's how we got here. Okay. No, I, I like that story. It takes me back to writing my first book and uh, mm -hmm. the first draft I got done and sent it off to a few friends and they were like, uh, Dan, this is really the book you want. Uh, I hope not at least. And uh, I really had to go back and take a gut check and say, what's this book about and what am I trying to do here? And, uh, you know, had to move to a very different book. Very little of the first draft survived. It sounds like uh, it was similar for you. Mm -hmm. um, one last thing before we run out of time here. You have a hierarchy at one point where you're talking about uh, our needs, physical, relational, organizational, health and lifestyle, learning and performance. Um, I'm maybe going to circle in on two of those in particular, the organizational mm -hmm. and the learning and performance. Because organizational can mean you're in a 
hierarchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so things are set and you maybe don't have as much control as you want. And learning and performance should, to my mind, ideally mean you really get to throw off those boundaries and mm-hmm. go someplace. So can you talk about the needs rel- relative to those two? Or if you don't like the question, take it differently and go any place <laughs> you want with those needs. Sure. So organizational needs, what what I mean by that is when I'm working with people trying to figure out where are they going to thrive professionally, most of the time they don't think about things like the environment that they're in and okay. the type of the type of organization you're in in terms of its size, its culture, what's the leadership style? Is it a very hierarchical organization or is it flatter, for example? What's their management philosophy? All of those really matter. Uh, what, what, are, what are the values of the organization, for example? Do they have a mission that you're passionate about? So thinking about uh, that level of your needs is very important for then reverse engineering and being very clear about the type of place that you want to work. And then last, you were talking about learning and performance needs, which in the model that I use, very similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, your learning and performance needs are at the tippy top. So this is really about what you think about when you can strive for more. So you have all your other basic needs met and your learning and performance needs are what do you want to cultivate for the future? What are the special gifts and talents you have? What are the activities that energize you? What skills are going to be most useful to you and be most beneficial to the organization in the long run? So I have a client right now who is going through um, professional development talks with her boss. Her boss is wanting to point her more towards a very product-specific role. This client, based on her most recent experiences, saying, you know what, I really want a leadership role. So her learning and performance needs are people, (laughs) people needs. She wants to manage and lead people. And so that it can be very clarifying to help you make decisions. Well, uh, that's incredible because you're really almost uh, feeding right into the last question I wanted to ask, which was, how often do you find with your clients then once you've taken them through this, made them realize their core values, maybe as opposed to the organization's values, how often does your advice get to be, uh, can we help you find a different role within the company? Maybe you're going to leave this company, maybe even going to leave this profession. I mean, what what percentage of time does that happen and any comments you want want to make in in light of that? Since the pandemic, that number has gone up drastically. And I would Uh say since uh, all of this happened, 60 to 80 percent of my clients have been making some sort of a transition. Wow. 60 to 80. That's huge. A lot. A lot. Either, as you were saying, changing not everyone is changing companies. Many of them are, but many of them are finding uh, new roles within their same team, or they are switching teams or business units, for example. Okay. So uh, I think the pandemic was a time that really shook people out of autopilot, gave them that space, and was really that um, prompting for reflection. And so many times, once sensitive strivers start doing this work, they do realize that they were tolerating a bad boss or a toxic workplace or that they've been following somebody else's definition of success and doing what they were supposed to be doing, but not really something that lights them up. So it is not uncommon for someone to realize, oh, wow, I do need to make a change after they go through this process. Okay. No, 60 to 80 is a, is a very large number. I, yeah. I expected 
Probably a little less than that, but in the context of the pandemic and people kind of doing a, you know, it's like a, everyone's having a midlife crisis brought on by the pandemic. Um, that's that's pretty interesting stuff. So I want to thank you, Melody, so much for being on the show. This has been episode number 60, Using Sensitivity as a Strength. My guest, Melody Wilding, her book is called Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking and Channel Your Emotions for Success at Work. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, you can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network website and you'll find the program listed under the special series programming. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In light of today's topic, I've chosen this quote from Charles Dickens who wrote, it is because I think so much of warm and sensitive hearts that I would spare them from being wounded. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you.